Hello and welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Well, Doctors Buchanan and O'Reilly, thank you for being back on the show. That's different for a title for you, Matt. It is now. It is now. Yeah, you've been traveling. Where have you been? I have. Uh, went to England a few weeks back for the purpose of defending my dissertation, and uh, but that was, was successful. It was successful. Yeah, happy to report. Congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to apologize to the listeners as well. We haven't had an episode come out in about a month at this point. Most of us were traveling. Uh, I was also traveling myself. I went to Salt Lake City and led a group of evangelical students to have interreligious dialogues between evangelicals and Latter-day Saint or Mormon students. A really fruitful time. The students get to engage with a group culture that they may not have otherwise gotten the opportunity to do so. And it's really neat to see those dialogues take place, especially from my perspective on the evangelical student side where they're getting pushed and they're getting challenged and they're finding the blind spots in their faith. And so we'll come back after each evening and say, hey, you know, one of the LDS guys or gals said this and I didn't know how to answer it. And I don't even know why we believe that. Why do we believe that? So it was a a challenging and encouraging time for those students. And I think they all grew in it. I had the idea, since we're doing this mini-series on misunderstandings or misappropriations of Bible verses, I can't tell you how many times I heard a few key Bible verses come up in these conversations, whether they be in the conversations of the dialogues between the LDS and the evangelical students, or if it was a question that was given to me by an evangelical student at a later time. And if you know anything about the Mormon faith, you know that they hold dear One of the central texts of their scripture is the King James Version of the Bible. And so a lot of the conversations that are occurring in these dialogues are orbiting scripture. Mm -hmm. LDS students recognize that it's very unlikely an evangelical is going to accept something from the Book of Mormon or Pearl of Great Price or Doctrine and Covenants, and so they try to keep it on the Bible. I've come up with a small list of common verses that I heard that I think it would be very beneficial and helpful on this show to discuss, especially if you're a listener and you're an LDS listener and you'd like to know a little bit more about how evangelicals approach scripture and interpretation of specific passages. This will be really helpful for you. Or if you're an evangelical listener and you have an LDS friend or family member or coworker and you've kind of hit an impasse in a conversation over one of these verses, this may give you vocabulary or a way to move forward in the conversation. And so the first verse I wanted to start with is used to provide a scriptural foundation for a practice that the LDS Church describes as proxy baptism. You may know it as baptism for the dead. Essentially, Latter-day Saints understand the afterlife as having multiple degrees 
degrees of glory in the highest degree of glory where you spend eternity in the presence of Elohim and Yahweh or the father and son is the celestial Clear that glory. up for me real quick. Elohim and Yahweh are not the same. No, in the, they're different gods. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah. Okay. And the father and is Elohim. Elohim is the creator. Um, no. okay. Well, so, sorry. Yeah, Didn't yeah, mean to open up a can of definitely deities Definitely double so. tapped that folder. Right, right. There's a lot of files in it. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm concerned. Uh, essentially, if you want to be in the presence of the father and the son, and the Holy Ghost for all eternity, and you want to be like him, you need to be welcomed into the celestial glory in the afterlife. There you go. Now, one of the covenants that must be kept to be welcomed into the celestial glory is baptism. Right. So this is part of what they would call the restored gospel. Problem is, there's a lot of people between the apostles and the early 19th century that were not baptized. They did not have this restored gospel preached to them. Mm -hmm. Currently, they're in a temporal holding cell, a spiritual Mm -hmm. prison. If you can be baptized on behalf of someone, they are then given that option. Mm -hmm. Now they have achieved a work that will allow them to move on to celestial glory. Okay, well, where do you get that from in Scripture is what the evangelical is going to ask. And they'll go to 1 Corinthians 15, 29, where Paul has been talking about the resurrection kind of can't believe people don't believe in the resurrection. And he's ending his argument. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Yeah. So what does that mean? So there are three, if you go to the commentaries and take a look at them, there are three basic options, I guess. The first one is the vicarious proxy baptism, where, you know, say, Kyle's grandmother didn't get baptized and he can be baptized and it'll sort of count for her. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the Mormon view. That's an option. Some people take it that way. The second option, and which was actually widely held in the early church, uh, was that the phrase, the dead, Greek is ton necron, referred not to dead bodies, but baptismal candidates pre-regenerational spiritual deadness. So baptized on behalf of the dead, a baptism on behalf of the dead would be you, potential convert, are spiritually dead and you need to be regenerated. And Baptized baptism, on behalf of yourself? Yeah, and bapti- well, no, it just means baptism. It's, it's a way of talking about baptism as a rite of conversion. Oh, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And you move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Mm-hmm at your conversion and baptism is associated with that, which takes away all the theological problems of proxy baptism because it's just sort of a metaphor for spiritual deadness. Mm -hmm. Some of the early church folks thought it simply referred to general human mortality. So they just didn't see the problems that we tend to sort of read into it. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were some of the widely held views in the early church. The last one, which I don't think has been widely held ever is uh, takes would translate you poor or huper, tone necron as not on behalf of the dead, but for the sake of the dead, which has something to do with if you do this, then you create some appeal or hope for post-mortem reunited with people. So that's not on many people's radar. Mm -hmm. The other two are the most prominent. The difficulty with this verse is Paul doesn't actually say what he means. Presumably the Corinthians know, and it doesn't matter very much for the argument. Paul's rhetorically speaking, he addresses their practice, right? He mentions this baptism for the dead practice 
there in verse 29, he mentions putting himself in danger, and he mentions sort of a hedonistic, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we'll die. So there are these three bodily practices, and he's sort of calling them out for being inconsistent. Mm. You don't believe in resurrection, but you put water on bodies. What's that all about? You know, if it's the proxy baptism, he's saying, well, these folks are dead, but they're not going to be raised from the dead if you've given what you think. So why do anything on their behalf? What does mm-hmm. it matter? Mm-hmm. You know, so at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what he means by baptism on behalf of the dead. He doesn't say it. There's no real way to know. Grammatically, it could work out in a couple of different ways, as we've talked about. And for his rhetorical purposes, he's simply trying to illumine their the inconsistency between their belief and their practice. Mm-hmm. Not that that helps us in our interreligious dialogue with our Mormon friends. But the point is you can't just sort of come. It's not clearly what they say it is. It may be, but even then Paul isn't, he's not clearly commending that as a practice. He's just sort of saying, what do you do that for? Given what you, you know? Yeah. It, It seems difficult to defend something as a central Christian practice. If it doesn't have any scriptural instruction, surrounding it or for it. So if this is a priority in the communities, why isn't Paul instructing them on the proper way to do it or what they should be doing? Now, he obviously talks about baptism in other places in his writings, and he does use the metaphor of death famously in Romans 6 to say we've died with Christ through baptism and we're raised with him. And, you know, you have the image of immersion of going down into the earth or down into the water and then raising up out of it. Right. Baptism is an image of death. Mm Mm-hmm. But if we're, if Christians are supposed to be baptized for people who have died that were unable to be baptized, then we don't have any instruction on how we're supposed to be doing that. And we don't have, even in the church, in the tradition of the church. Yeah, that was going to be my thing is, I mean. You would have bishops, you would think, in the early centuries that would be, yeah. they have rules for all kinds of things right. that Here, even that go beyond what the New Testament addresses. Right. Here's what you do with that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like where's the manual for pastors to, yeah. where's the liturgy for it? Where's, you know, yeah. it's absent. Yeah. I think two things here are important. The one that we've been talking about, Paul is not explicitly approving this. Right. In fact, he's almost, it's almost offhanded. It's almost offhanded. And, yeah. and even in third person, he doesn't say, well, then why do you baptize for the day? He's saying, why are people? baptized on behalf of the dead. Well, who's Paul talking about? I don't know. We're not specifically told. What a Latter-day Saint would say, though, is, well, this is our argument the whole time. This is one of those plain and precious truths that have been stripped out by the great abominable church. This is one of the covenants that just stripped out with malicious intent. And so this is residue. They didn't quite scrub the text clear enough. They left this in somehow or... God's grace kept it in just so we'd have a little bit to go on uh, when Joseph Smith restored the church. The problem with conspiracy theories is that you need to present proof at some point in the process. So things can begin like that and you have a hypothesis and you explore it, but you subject something to, you know, rigorous historical investigation. Mm -hmm. And if you can't come up with anything to validate or confirm or at least you know, supplement your hypothesis in some sense, then you need to change your hypothesis or keep looking. So you can imagine whatever scenario you like for whichever text you want and say that. But then what is that? Is that one person's opinion? Is that, you know, several thousand people's opinion versus 
a 2000 year relatively unbroken testimony in, you know, a community that encompasses billions of people. I mean, so you just have to weigh things and decide. Again, I'd want to bring certain claims into the court of reason and say, okay, well, your divinely inspired text says this, our divinely inspired text says this, they're incompatible. So let's talk about evidences. Let's talk about reasons. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about motivations. Let's talk about archaeology. Let's talk about all kinds of stuff. And where's the corroborating details? The uh, Oxford New Testament scholar of the last generation or previous generation, George Caird, is known for saying, Christianity appeals to history and to history it must go. Mm. And we've got lots of history to go to. Mm -hmm. We've got New Testament early church history. We've got how the church has taken that. And there's tons and tons of evidence to be sifted through. Yeah. And, to work. and lots of people are doing it. And there's a robust discussion happening around those things. And and that's the thing is when I hear the arguments you're presenting to us, I want to say, well, you're making all these historical claims. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mormon religion is making all these historical claims. But at the end of the day, you know, you've appealed to history, but you can't go to it because mm-hmm. you don't, we haven't been able to sort of give us the historical evidence. Yeah. I think one of the helpful things to do too is say, okay, let's assume you're right. Let's assume that everything about the so-called restored gospel that Mormonism teaches today is true. And we should see residue of that in first Corinthians. We'll take that letter in specific. I'll grant it to you. I don't know how to explain chapter 15. What I'd like then to know is how in the reverse one as a Latter-day Saint would explain chapter seven. So part of the restored gospel is that marriage is forever, that (laughs) if you want to achieve celestial glory uh, or be received into celestial glory, you need to become like heavenly father. Heavenly father is married to a woman, heavenly mother. And so that covenant of marriage is something that must be done in this life. It would be a priority to do so because that's one of the things that gets us into the highest state of being we could possibly be. If that's the case, and Paul preached that gospel, my question in chapter 7 is, why would Paul say these things? It says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Well, what is he wishing? Verse 8, To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Mm. So let's assume you're right. Let's assume that the restored gospel is what Paul was preaching. Why in the world was he telling people to remain single? If he knows for a fact, you must be married to become like God is today. Maybe he has a second chance to get married. Maybe this Mm -hmm. was a cultural thing. I I think that's very strong evidence against that thesis. Another way to run that, the same rhetorical strategy in another text Let's assume you're right, that baptism is essential for salvation. And Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians 15. Why then, in 1 Corinthians 1, does he say, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you mm-hmm. except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say you're baptized in my name. And then he remembers, oh yes, I think I did the house of Stephanus too. Don't forget those guys. <laughs> but then in verse 17, for Christ did not send Shout me to out. baptize. Shout out to Stephanus. That's right. If baptism is essential for salvation, and Paul knows that, why does he say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel? Mm-hmm. Right? Because he Paul does doesn't not care see. about people's salvation. Apparently. Right? So 
you know, you do have all these things where Paul talks about in his letters that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says it's his vocation to proclaim that gospel, you know, and that similar sorts of things show up in First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Why then does he sort of rank his priorities, gospel and then baptism, mm-hmm. as sort of important but secondary? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On your view, explain that. You have different things at stake in different texts, and not all of them are equally important. So if someone wants to practice proxy baptism for the dead, okay. But if you're messing with the divine identity of Jesus as the logos of God, the word of God, yeah. you know, then that's of a different level in terms of uh, what's at stake in terms of the way that text is being read and used and changed. Yeah. I mean, my concern with proxy baptism isn't so much getting baptized multiple times in a basin in the basement of a temple somewhere. What's more concerning for me is not the action, but the root of the action. What's the motivation here? And the motivation here is, well, there is something that needs to be done in order for one to be justified. And that's the root concern I have for the action of proxy baptism. If there's something one needs to do to become saved, as far as justification is concerned, well, now we're pushing against what Paul wrote in Galatians. If you want to keep just an ounce of the law, go ahead, but you must keep it all. And the second you stumble, you've been cut off from grace. You've fallen from Christ, he says in Galatians 5.4. All that to say, I think that's good. I think we see two things here. Authority is key when it comes to interpretation of Scripture. As evangelicals, our highest authority is God as revealed to us in both general and special revelation, which means we give great weight to Scripture. I would add the collected works of C.S. Lewis there. (laughs) And and Tolkien. And Tolkien? Okay. Well, maybe you're... Your PhD studies have but, uh, twisted but how you on. understand authority. But yeah, so, <laughs> so, so scripture plays a very, very big role in how we understand the way that God is willing and working in the universe. I've recently decided that if you want to understand the Pentateuch, you need to have the mythology of Middle Earth as well. That's probably not true. Both of these things are, are probably no, no, not no. True. <laughs> <laughs> That's your, that's your word against his. Deeply, true, yeah. deeply and firmly committed to that proposition now. <laughs> and he's got the plates to prove his case. <laughs> that's incredible. But you can't see him. Wow. Too bad he threw them yeah. into Mordor and we don't have them anymore. No, no, no. Christopher has them in France. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's good to know that. Uh, yeah. So issues of authority. I mean, that's what's happening. If you're coming from an evangelical perspective, which I think is the right perspective, uh, your ultimate authority is God, is Christ. He gives us special revelation. He makes promises that his church will not fail against the gates of Hades. He promises that his words will not go away every yacht and tittle until everything is fulfilled. So we take Jesus on his authority or we are left with another option. We'll take Joseph's authority. Well, yeah, the church wailed against the gates of Hades, but for the past 1,200 years have failed. And so it needs a restoration or well, I know Jesus promised that his words would stay, but through disobedience and sin, uh, he kind of had to kick that promise down a millennium and a half almost. But thank goodness Joseph came and was able to restore us back to the original way things used to be. Your conversations with Latter-day Saints are going to orbit the authority. Where is the central authority coming from? And that's going to be the big difference between the two. Hmm. That's the difference between uh, conservative and liberal Methodists. 
It's a familiar conversation, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, we're squaring it now, aren't we? Um, no, I think that's important to stress. Jesus taught his followers how to read scripture. He says, you know, you look at the passage in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, and he opens the law and the prophets to his disciples and says, everything you read in scripture concerns me essentially. And so this idea of a Christological hermeneutic or a Christ-centered way of reading the Bible, where we see the significance of the Messiah in the Old Testament and how that's revealed in an even fuller, greater way in the New Testament. We read the Bible with Christ. We read it theologically. We look for Christian meanings in the text. And it seems like those are incompatible with Mormon ways of reading the Bible. And they have an explanation for that. It sounds like that the church has corrupted the text and removed the plain and precious things that should be believed. So to me, it comes down to a choice of, do I want to read the Bible as Christ taught or do I want to read the Bible as Joseph Smith taught? I read a sentence about Mormonism the other day, not in preparation for this or anything. I just happened to encounter it in what I was reading, but it was basically an assessment that Mormonism is essentially an early American romance and kind of put it in that genre of here's an origin story for a people that gives them significance and meaning. And it's kind of romantically involved with America and romance in the sense of, you know, kind of an epic adventure, you know, form of literature. I thought that was an interesting way to think about the whole affair. There's just something about in the human condition where we are bent toward wanting to self aggrandize our lives or our situation. We want to feel important and special. And there's just so much, at least on the surface of Mormonism, again, from an outsider's perspective that, ooh, there's secrets here. There's kind of a Gnostic element to, oh, we're the special favored people of God that's been you know, lost to history, but now we have these secrets and this special knowledge and, and these billions of people have missed out on it because they've corrupted the whole thing. But we have this kind of insider now, uh, true, one true perspective. And I think it's significant that in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, I don't know, I haven't read enough other holy books, quote unquote, holy books uh, to mm-hmm. know how unique this is, but I feel that it's unique. The Bible is that text that is so self-critical of itself and of its people. Yeah that it doesn't hide the flaws. You know, if Peter is authorizing Mark's gospel, maybe leave that part out about me denying Jesus, you know, when he was betrayed. And I said, damn it, I never knew him, mm-hmm. you know, the third time. Mm-hmm. Let's clean that up a bit, you know, or that. So there's God's people come off looking so poorly and so bad. King David, I mean, whomever it is, apart from a few isolated examples, like maybe Joseph and, um, you know, there's a few figures here or there who don't seem to have much Daniel, maybe negative press about them. But so there's this built-in sense of self-critical reflection. And the important thing about Israel is that God is glorious and shows them. God goes out of his way to say, you're not that special. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you shouldn't be proud of your election because God chooses the foolish things of the world Mm -hmm. to 
confound the wise mm-hmm. and he chooses the poor and the insignificant, these earthen vessels to put his glory in. What's special is God. And it's not to say you're not special out there, listeners. You are special. You're made in the image of God. Especially but the, the millennials. But there's this appeal. I, I want to say there's this appeal to feel that sense of, oh, I'm let in on the big secret and I have kind of this special favor you know, that's appealing. And so I could see how Joseph Smith comes up with a good story and other people want to be a part of that. And it just kind of feeds that sort of egocentric need to be on the inside of something. I I think that most other people are excluded from. The longer I've studied the Mormon faith, the more I've come to the opinion that it is a religion that fills in the gaps and is uncomfortable with mystery. I can already hear Latter-day Saints disagreeing with me on the fact that they're uncomfortable with mystery uh, because they'll say there's a lot of things within our faith that are mysterious. And I would agree, but what I mean by that is during the time of Joseph Smith in the earliest days of Mormonism, it was a religion that had all the answers. Well, how should we be baptized? Book of Mormon tells you. Well, where did Native Americans come from? Book of Mormon tells you. Well, that's not fair. How could God, if he it's requires... It's not fair to the Native Americans, that's for sure. And no. not just any questions, questions that that generation was concerned Specifically with. Specifically to that, yeah, what do yeah. we do with Masons? Book of Mormon says something. What yeah. about the Roman Catholic Church? Book of Mormon has the answer. Yeah. And so... That's handy. To me, it's an apologetic, in a sense, to answer questions of that day. But the problem being... It's not true. And there we have it. The lion, yeah. the witch, and the wardrobe answer a thousand questions. And do so masterfully, beautifully. Aslan's not a real lion. I, re- I reject this analogy, especially in this context. You're going to have to go somewhere else, friend. You can go to your world of DC comics if okay. you want to touch on. Have you not read Myth Become yeah. Fact? <laughs> you know what I mean. Start though. over, Kyle. It'll, it'll work a fiction. Pick someone <laughs> other than an inkling. <laughs> so the thing that I like a lot about Batman is that he Much touches better. on issues of human Say whatever depravity. You want. Say whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> he teaches on issues of human depravity. And even in a comic form, he hits on philosophical issues that people don't realize they wrestle with, but they do. And then when they get through a 12-page comic book, they've come out the other end, and the comic book writers have answered a question. Batman's not real. Gotham City is not real. Bruce Wayne is not real. The issue that they were trying to get at is real. And I think that in one sense, the Book of Mormon attempted to answer questions in that way, fully knowing that it was fiction, but dealing with real problems. I disagree with the solutions that the Book of Mormon was given. And more unfortunately, it was appropriated to start a religion that continues to try to fill in gaps where there is mystery and those gaps should not be filled in. And again, how does this happen? Back to your source of authority. It all goes back to Joseph Smith, whether or not he was called by an angel when he was a little boy, dug up plates in a hill near his house, and was able to translate the Book of Mormon by the power of God by using seer stones. If that story's true, we're wrong. Yeah. If that story's false, they're wrong. On the question of true, and as a footnote to our kerfuffling a few minutes ago, if you were to ask... Lewis, or to, if you were to ask Tolkien and whether or not his fictional writings were true, he would say, I hope they are. 
And I read that two days ago. Mm-hmm. He, that's what he said. And again, his point then what he means is I've written something that I hope teaches you about reality. Right. 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 And so the reason for our listeners that Travis and I objected so vehemently there was, uh, <laughs> is that those guys themselves were writing as Christian people and they were writing what they took to be Christian literature, not allegory, you know, not sort of like Aslan is Jesus right, and let's sort right, of throw right. this out here and mm-hmm. Bunyan-esque sort of things. But they were trying to write a story that encapsulated these deep narratival truths. Mm-hmm. And we would want to distinguish that from what we encounter in Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Thanks for switching to back. Yeah, no problem. And don't ever make there, that mistake again. <laughs> there are people that perhaps make a serious attempt to make a religion out of the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or... And Tolkien um, thought those people were weird. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, when you get to that level, maybe you might be comparing something similar where, you know, maybe these writings had an initial purpose in their community, but then they're taken up as holy scripture and a religion evolves from them. I mean, what are we doing? Are we just keeping the train running now? You know, like we've invested so much in this. A whole another conversation that would be interesting to have is what does one do if they've given 30, 40 years of their life to a religion, a faith, a practice, everything orients around it? Mm-hmm. Can you even let yourself question its veracity, its truthfulness? Or do you have just so much committed psychologically already, personally already that, you know, I can't mess with foundations and this is the foundation of my life. This was the family I was born into. This was the church I was born into. What would it take for me to honestly evaluate these things? Am I willing to sacrifice what seems like my whole life? Yeah, that's a very helpful thing to say. And it's important to eventually disagree with yourself Mm. sometime. If you never disagree with yourself, you're probably stuck in a rut. Yeah. So I was telling some college students last week about when I gave up on the rapture and I sort of grew up in Alabama Bible Belt of evangelical subculture of the 1990s. And I didn't have this deep commitment to sort of left behind Tim LaHaye. When you saw Kirk Cameron, you thought to yourself, darn it. Everybody thought that and no one knew there were options, right? Mm -hmm. And then I get to seminary and start reading books on New Testament interpretation of the history of the church and discover all that was made up in the early 1800s. And I remember telling a friend of mine that I've got this thing, this expectation that's just sort of been a part of my theology, not because I'm deeply committed to it. It's just sort of been there all my life. And you don't give up on things you've just sort of taken for granted easily. And so even after I had intellectually given up on all of that sort of pessimistic eschatology and escapist eschatology, I still sort of had this weird sentimentality attraction Mm -hmm. to it. I don't have that anymore. But it took longer for that. And so I think what I'm getting at is Travis's point is is significant if you've sort of been indoctrinated into That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, by the way. That your point is significant. Uh, <laughs> let me say it again. Travis's point is significant because it's a real thing. If you've been indoctrinated into something, enculturated into something, even if you don't have this sort of deep, like, I've read the text, I'm committed to this, I have 15 reasons why I hold this view. Mm. If it's just sort of in the air of your culture or your subculture, giving up on it's tough. And pastors need to be sensitive to that Very much in a variety of issues. Mm -hmm. I regularly find myself sitting with people who have questions, and one of the things I'm happy to say is, you know what, we don't have to figure this out today. God is big enough to handle your questions. It's okay. You know, we're going to 
I've been thinking about some of these things for 20 years. Sometimes I rethink it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, but that's okay. Right. So when we're talking with folks who maybe, maybe they're coming out of a Mormon setting mm-hmm. and they're wrestling with things, we should be sensitive to those kind of human sensibilities where we're drawn to things we've held to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we're in conversation with someone who takes a different view of these things than us with regard to Latter-day Saints folks, I mean, I know we sort of made some jokes and things here today, but a little patience and gentleness and sensitivity is, yeah. is, is in order there. And I like what you said. We can think through these things. God is big enough. The we is plural. Yeah. Community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the community of faith is so important. Uh, especially with those that are in a Latter-day Saint culture, community and family is a big deal for Latter-day Saints. One of my holy envy things within the Mormon religion is how high they prioritize the family uh, within their own culture. That said, if an individual decides to leave the LDS church, they're leaving quite a bit. And if they don't have a community to go to when they've left, then that's a very vulnerable and dangerous place to be in. So I think community as well is a big issue. Yep.